I am not ashamed to say it, but I am 47 years young. Um, I don't look at a day over 37, though. I know that. Uh, Y'all were just thinking that. I know that. Um, In the midst of my 47 years uh, on this great big blue marble, um, I can hardly remember a time on a Sunday that I did not gather in some form or fashion with believers. Call it worship under a mango tree in West Africa. Call it worship in a worship center in in America, in a hotel room in a communist China country or Vietnam where Christianity cannot flourish as, as we might think it might flourish in the forms that we might think it might flourish. I can hardly think of a time like that. And so if I was to take the course of my 47 years and I was to add up the number of of Sundays that I've lived and I have worshipped with other believers, I've gathered with other believers. I'm going to say it like that. Maybe I've worshipped or not. That's another topic of conversation. But I've gathered with with believers in that course of time would would add up to 2,444 times that I have gathered in an intent, with a purpose, with a desire to worship. Now, I'm hanging on something here, and we're going to kind of circle back and go back around through this, but there's no guarantees that I worshiped anymore that there's guarantees that because you're in this room today and because you might have set aside Sundays for a, a, a time of family worship, that you worship. It's more than a time on a calendar. It's, you must have a time for it, otherwise it will never happen. But it, it starts with a time. Now, let's, let's, let's put that on pause, and I want to come over and talk about where we're going to be going for the next few weeks. Right up to Christmas time, we're going to be talking about this concept, this question, what matters most? That question right there, what matters most in our lives, in what we give ourselves to? And I want us to wrestle that down. And uh, you might think, okay, Mike, you start talking about worship and, okay, I know where you're going to go with this. Now you're going to go real religious. But really what I, I want to know is how can I get ahead or how can I deal with this stress or how, how can I continue to live with this person in my life? You know, it's some real practical hands-on. And I, and I dare say that there's something deeper that needs to be addressed first. And if we get the, the deeper things, the, when we get the big rocks in the jar first, the other smaller rocks will fit in. And we got to get the big rocks in. And so we're going to talk about big rocks things. We're going to talk about big rock things that if we get these things in there, then it will help with the other decisions of life. It will help with the other questions that we, that we wrestle with. So what is it that matters most? We asked this a few weeks ago to you as a congregation, and you wrote on a little post-it note, stuck it on whiteboards out in the, out in, in, in the lobby, and we went through that whole exercise, and we're going to kind of unveil those as we go along here. But I want to say this. And just going to put it out there as my hypothesis, as my belief, is that the thing that matters most is knowing and acknowledging God in all that He is, in His height, width, depth, everything that He is. If we know Him as much as we can possibly know Him, and then let that inter- interface with our life, then I think we're on the right, a road to what really matters. Yeah, oh, Mike, that's, that's the bingo middle thing. Everyone knows that God's the first answer. Yes, we might know that is the answer with our lips, but do we live it with our life? 
That may be the bigger thing. And I want to challenge us today. And I want to challenge us for the rest of our life. And I want to challenge us every time we walk into this room that we call a worship center for a worship hour together. I want to ask you the question as I have to ask myself the question, did I, am I living a life of worship? Am I doing what really matters? And you want to put it in a short, simple statement? It is knowing God and worshiping God. If I know God, then I, listen, if I know God for all that He is, I can't help but worship God. But if I start with worship and I don't start with God, then I may never make it to God. I may worship my worship. I may worship the building. I may worship a stained glass, if we even had stained glass. I may worship the band. I may worship the pastor. I may like this or that. But really, don't start with worship. Start with God. And from that, let worship naturally come. You think, okay, Mike, where are we going with this? There's, there's very important that we get this down. Because if we don't start with God, then we're going to miss out on a whole lot. In a very kind of trite, kind of cheesy kind of statement, you might say it like this. If there's no God, there's not going to be any peace. If, or if you know God, you will know peace. God is the, is the, is the crust of it all. It, God is the, the bedrock of it all. We've got to get that one right. We've got to get that one down solid. And so to, to kind of launch us into this message, I want to talk about two key handles, if you will. Two key rungs in a ladder. Maybe there's only two rungs in this ladder. But if we're going to live a life of, of what matters most, knowing God and worshiping Him, Let's break that down. The very first thing I think we need to understand, key word that we need to understand, you find it throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is the word just glory, okay? Glory. And glory speaks to who God is. Now, just think about that for just a moment. I know we don't use glory in, in, our, in, in, our, in our phraseology all the time, but it is a word that is used in the Old Testament quite regularly and even in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word kavod. It's used the most common time the word is translated in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it is the Hebrew word kavod, which literally means heaviness. All right, you might not have thought about glory meaning heaviness. It means density. It means a weightedness about it. So just kind of let that rest in your mind. When I say glory, I'm talking about density. I'm talking about weight. I'm talking about, I'm talking about something of substance, okay? When we're talking about God, we are talking about something of substance, something weighty, something dense in life. Here's a, here's a couple of examples of when it's used. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the density of God. The heavens are declaring the weightiness of God. So let me relate this to something I heard this past week on the radio. So listening to the radio, just a random station, and this speaker on the radio said this. said, do you realize that there are more stars in our galaxy? There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on every seashore, on every beach throughout the world. That 
blows my mind to think. When I think of sand, I think of this endless stuff that is in my suitcase after I come back from the beach. That I'm washing out of clothes. Washing is how we say it in Arkansas. Washing out of clothes. That I'm shaking it out of suitcases. Months after I get back from my trip, sand is everywhere. Sand is in crevices. Sand is in ears. Sand is everywhere. And then when you go out there, there's still sand. And then to say, I'm sorry, I can't get my mind around this, that there are so many stars that, that are out there, that there are more stars out there than there are sand in the earth. That is the vastness of God. That is the glory of God speaking to us that He is big, He is huge, He is great. And the heavens, every one of those stars is speaking to His greatness. Is speaking to His density. Is speaking to His weightedness. Here's another one. Psalm 72 verse 19 says, May the whole earth be filled with His glory. This is not just a phrase that you use here. We'll see this phrase again and again and again in Scripture. In fact, you should do a phrase study this week of how many times this phrase, the whole earth is filled with His glory. And how many times the earth is talked about having the glory of God. And that this is a prayer, that this is a desire of God. May the whole earth, everything, this room, your house, your love life, your thought life, your job life, your school life, the everything about it might have the density of God, the weightiness of God, the reality of God there. There's a thickness of it that should make it up. When you come in this room, I hope that you sense the glory of God. Not because I'm here, not because the pants here, not because of some cool graphic, not because of cool seats, not because... No, I hope that you sense the weightiness of God, the glory of God. If you were to describe God, I was thinking about this this past week, if you want to describe me, you would say, okay, he's about six foot three, 200 and blah, 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 pounds, and, and, and it's all lean body muscle mass. That's what it is. See, I'm gloating about myself today. Talk about my age and everything. That's how you would describe me. He's the guy up there who talks a lot. Oh, yeah, I know who that is. Okay, you put descriptions. If you're going to describe God, how would you describe God? Literally, the Bible would describe God as glory. We need to understand this word. We are describing, we are understanding, we are understanding the way, the density, the fullness, the completeness of, of, of God. That's why I pray to God that every time you walk into this room, we call it a worship center, that worship happens. But I have no guarantees of that. I would hope and pray to God that this band under Robbie's leadership would be so consumed by the glory of God that they'd be so overwhelmed by the glory of God that they would just busted out. You couldn't, you couldn't miss it. You would hear words from me. You would hear prayers from others. You would, you would hear stories from people's lives and it would be about the glory of God in their life. Now, whether or not worship happens is still, still up to you. We can only create space. We can only create space. If you want to use this time to catch up on your emails, If you want to use this time to be on Facebook, if you want to use this time to text friends, you can do that. You can fill this time 
with you or the glory of God? The density of God. The weightiness of God. The magnitude of God. The infinity of God. It will take eternity to study the infinity. And how he continues on and on and on. But yet the reality is most people go to church today. And this is according to a Barna study. 32% of those who go to church do not sense that they experience God in worship. And some 44 hadn't experienced God in the past year. God forbid. If we don't understand, if we don't live in, if we don't embrace, if we don't unpack, if we don't allow the glory of God, the weightiness, the density of God to consume our days, then we are missing God. And here's one thing I can guarantee you. If you have a small God, you will have a big you. But if you have a big God an infinite God, a dense God, a gloryful God, a a measurable God, I mean a weightiness God, you will have a very small you. And the universe will be in balance at that point. The problem is naturally, we come through life, we're so consumed with us that God is little more than an afterthought. The second thing we must grab a hold of And it flows out of understanding and embracing, experiencing the glory of God, the density of God, the measuredness, the weightiness of God, and that is worship. When we understand and allow the glory of God to penetrate into our lives, the weightiness to wait on on us, you know, when we experience that weightiness in this room, maybe it's a word, and some of y'all say sometimes, you know, Mike, you were speaking right to me. Listen, I don't have that. Your wife did not send me emails. I don't get that kind of information. God doesn't give me a private download into your life secrets. I'll promise you this, that part of that weightiness that you might be feeling from time to time, from Sunday to Sunday, from experience to experience is not me, is not my, my, my eloquent words, my wordsmithing. It is not, not, not. It is the glory of God coming at you so that you might experience God. And what do you do with the glory of God when you experience the weightiness of God is that you must bring yourself in full surrendered worship to God. Worshiping God, bringing yourself to Him. As I, as I heard that statement on the radio this past week, I promise you, it's consumed me all week long trying to think and imagine number of stars, number of sands, and all that kind of measures up. And then I got to thinking about one verse or one passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews. It came to my mind. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says this. It says, God spoke to the fathers by the shepherds. For a long time He spoke to to us through mankind, through the prophets of old. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed an heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. God, Jesus created the world. You don't want to know who the Creator is? It is Jesus. He was a part of that. John 1.1 1, 1 also affirms that. He is the radiance of the, what is it? The glory of God. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. The glory, the weightiness of God, the measurements of God, the beauty of God is seen in Jesus, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his mouth. His mere words keeps this blue marble spinning. His mere words keeps your life from running havoc. You think my life is havoc. 
He's the one who will be there in the craziness of it all. Find the book of Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be there in just a moment. And I think I can illustrate this. But worship is when we ascribe worth to something because of the density of God, because of the greatness of God, because of the the infiniteness of God, because of the inexplainableness of God. And I can't even put any more words on there, just pile them up there. Because He is infinite, because He is great, because He is amazing, all of a sudden I must break into worship of Him. I must fall to my knees. I must weep. I must bow my heads. I must raise my hands. Whatever that may look like for you, I must, I, I must take on a posture of worship. You find Isaiah chapter 6. If you have a hard copy, open it up. If you have an electronic copy, scroll down. Whatever the case may be, look at this. We're going to look at Isaiah in chapter 6. Whenever Isaiah is just at the beginning of his life as a prophet, now, R.C. Sproul says that, that he was not like most prophets, that he actually was from a kind of an aristocratic family and he had access to kings and he had access to, to rulers. And he was not like most of the other prophets, but he was an amazing prophet uh, where, whatever side of the tracks he grew up on. He lived under four different monarchs. He was born under Uzziah, and Uzziah greatly impacted his life, as we will see. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all were kings during Isaiah's life. We're going to pick up in a story here when Isaiah uh, is experiencing a mournful season, an entire year of mourning over the death of this great king, King Uzziah. And I want to read just one phrase, and then we'll stop. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, And in the year that King Uzziah died, stop. Now, I don't know what's in your life, what's died in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that's died in your life. And all you're left with is a heap of emotion. Maybe it's a career that you thought was going here and it's ended up there. Something's died in your life. Maybe it's a true loved one who you walked through life with and you experience death of a family member and you're in that state of mourning and all of a sudden life's pressure starts putting itself around you. How do you handle this? What is it about King Uzziah and Isaiah that he is in the state of mourning while he's in this temple? Why was he so impactful? See, Uzziah, this is about the 8th century BC, Uzziah became king when he was 16 years of age. Now, what does a, no, uh, I have a 16-year-old in the house. So what does a 16-year-old have right being a king? Okay? I'll let you answer that in your own home, okay? But for the next 52 years, from age 16, the next 52 years, Uzziah becomes the king and stays the king. It's the longest-running king for the longest time. He is the king, 52 years. Now, just to put that into perspective... How many in this room would admit, I just gave my age earlier, how many of you would admit that you were living during JFK? Raise your hand. All right. There's a few proud ones in here. All right. Good deal. So if you think about that, JFK to the present, and you go through all of the presidents since then, you would go through JFK, LBJ, uh, Nixon, Forder, Forder, <laughs> Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, again, Obama. Did I miss anyone? I think it's it. All right, so here's the reality. 
That entire length of time of presidents was the time that Uzziah was the king. You talk about a person who impacted a country. He had built up a mighty army. He had built cisterns into the cities. He had done a lot for the city. And now all of a sudden, this great king is dead. He's gone off the scene. What does he do? Life over here for for Isaiah was great in mourning and this great loss and where are we going to go? And security is gone. But I love the next statement. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sometimes it takes tragedy. Sometimes it takes death. Sometimes it takes loss. And then we see the Lord. I'm not saying it always has to be this, but I am saying this, that some of the greatest times in my spiritual walk with God have been some coming out of some of the darkest valleys of my walk with God. When I begin to see God in the midst of life and I understand that, oh, my security is gone, but there is God. Oh, the, uh, life seems overwhelming, but there is God. Oh, where am I going to go with this? But there is God. And God somehow fits in at this point to my life. Here's just a life principle for you. Real life, real life. Misjudgments, misfortunes can catalyze authentic and passionate worship in us. You lose a job. You lose a relationship. The police in the middle of the night come knocking on your door giving the news that you never, ever want to hear. What do you do in those moments? Isaiah saw the Lord. And we're going to pick it up here and we're going to see a worship experience unfold right before our eyes. First thing that happens is adoration of who God is. A vision begins to unfold in front of Isaiah. He saw the Lord. And we'll pick it up in the passage of Scripture where it says it here. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood seraphim, Each had six wings, and the two that covered his face, and the two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called and said to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Read it with me. The whole earth is full of his glory. We just talked about that. The whole earth is full of His glory. Psalms just declared that. What is this statement? What we see here is we see a glimpse into heaven. We see this worship experience. Not a service. We don't say service around here. Service gives the idea that we're having a worship service and we're serving up something hot and fresh to you. Listen, we don't serve you worship. We have worship gatherings. And you can come to the worship gathering. And my prayer is that in that worship gathering, you will worship. But I have no control over whether or not you worship. So let's take a moment. Let's just glimpse glimpse into heaven and let's just catch a picture of a worship experience in heaven. And we see these seraphim, which is another word for angels. And it's not the angels that you see in the most books that you see today, because I would believe that those were many that we see today talk about angels. It's actually not a biblical version of an angel. And anything that's not a biblical version of a biblical angel is of an angel, but of darkness and not of light. So beware. Get your image and your angelology from Scripture. We get a picture of an angel here. He has six wings. 
All right, he has six wings, and when we die, we don't become angels. That's a, that's a myth, that's a fallacy, that is just, this is wrong, okay? So don't tell your children you're going to become an angel when you die. You're a little angel now, and you're going to be an angel when you die. No, you're a little demon now, and you're not careful. You're going to continue on the same track. <laughs> but when you look at these angels, what happens? You see that they had two wings that covered their face, two wings that covered their feet, and with two they flew. What is this all about? Literally with the, with the body, the life, the physical nature, the makeup of an angel, you see the angels are worshiping God with their lives. Two, they covered their face, spoke of the reverence of God, and people could not even look on the, on the face of God. God is so great and so amazing and so awesome. You don't look on the face of God. Moses was only able to get a glimpse of the backside of God. And literally in the Hebrew, it says his hindquarters. They only caught the back glimpse of God for just a quick moment because you don't look on the face of God and live, the Scripture says. That's how awesome and incredibly amazing He is. Again, the glory, the density, the weightiness of God. And with two, they covered His feet. Spoke from head to toe that my life, from head to toe, my hands, my feet, my everything, my head, everything, is to be used as an act of worship. You think about when, when Moses saw God in the burning bush, he experienced again the glory of God, the density of God, the measure of the greatness of God in the bush. And as he did, what did he say? Take off your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Speaks of a balance. I know there's three verses. It's not equal balance. But here's the idea. Is that our lives are to be used as acts of worship. Sometimes we're humbling ourselves in worship. Sometimes we're covering ourselves. Whatever that representation may be, sometimes we're serving Him. And we'll see in a few moments where the angels literally served for God and brought purity to them. Sometimes you're serving. This is what we say around here. This is why it's a biblical formation of, of who we are around here. That it is healthy and right and good and biblical for you to serve one and worship one. Because we need to worship in this room, but we need to serve beyond this room. And it's not just what happens in this room. So many of us become consumers of religious goods and services only to walk out to critique the religious goods and services and say, hey, it's better down the street. It's warmer, it's fresher, there's fresh bread down there. Let's go down there. No. Find the church that speaks of the glory of God and lifts up the glory of God, a band that oozes the glory of God, a pastor that spills the glory of God, children's ministry that raises up children who understand the glory of God, you who are fostering an understanding and embracing the glory of God and it's leading you in worship with your life, with your life. The angels also praise God with their lips, if you notice. If you go on reading in, in verse 3, it says, "In one call to another. So they're speaking to one another. Worship is this, is this corporate experience. And what did they say to one another? They said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
Now, it's very interesting when you study the Hebrew language that in the Hebrew, they didn't have in, on their papyrus or, 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 or their tablets, they didn't have the means, the fonts to elevate something as we would do. I mean, that, that makes sense. They didn't underscore something. They didn't take a highlighter and highlight it. They didn't bold print it like we do today if we want to emphasize something. They didn't put an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. In fact, in the Hebrew and the Greek, they didn't have punctuation. So the, what they would do in three-time repetition is they would say something again and again and again for emphasis. And I want to point something out to you because you do not need to miss this. That the only attribute of God that's ever mentioned in three-time repetition, not once, but multiple times, is that He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. He is so set apart. He is so unique. You'll not find another God like this God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The angels were singing it. But my friends, let's not miss this. Let us not miss this. Because even in the scriptures, we will find ourselves singing it. But we cannot be the church that comes together, that has good, cool programs, that sends off people around the world to do great things for God, but we fail to worship. Philip Yancey said, he said, the church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or to encourage vulnerability or to build self-esteem or to facilitate friendships, but to worship God. And if it fails in that, it fails. We cannot fail at worship. What we want to do in this room is we want to foster, we want to encourage, we want to make priority, we want to set our weeks going in the right direction in this room, but it is something that you take beyond this room. We're going to make it a corporate value here that we're going to make it a priority in everything that we do. We're going to say it's what matters most. Weekly worship is of highest corporate act in the body of Christ, Ann Ortland said. It is the visible demonstration that He is priority one to us and to our church. We must pray over it, labor over it, and shape it. We must make our building right for it to worship as well as we can undistracted, inspired and uplifted. We must center all the church schedule around it. No individual will linger outside chatting. It's the first priority of the priority one. It's the creme de la creme. It's whenever we come in and we experience, look to, learn of, the glory of God that brings us into worship. I told you in Isaiah, we saw a worship service in heaven with the angels singing holy, holy, holy. Let me give you a glimpse into the future, into your future if you're a child of God. And I want you to see what you will be singing. In Revelation chapter 4, you heard Brooke share it just a few moments ago. Read this out loud with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because of you. You created what you please. 
Don't labor yourself a sack of wasted human flesh. Don't, don't degrade yourself. There's something about you that God saw in his created order that he would put breath in you, give you another day to live, that you would be, bring pleasure to him. As you unpack the glory of God and you understand that you are not an accident, there are all no illegitimate children, illegitimate parents, but illegitimate children there are not. The reality is that you were created to bring pleasure to please God. Adoration is what should mark our life. The second is revelation. Revelation of who I am not. You look at Isaiah's response as he's seen this incredible scene in in heaven. Come to verse 4 and you read this. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, who called. And the house was filled with smoke. You talk about a haze machine. God has the smoke machine. And I said, this is what Isaiah said. These are the first words from Isaiah. Woe is me. Oh, no, I am not there. I'm not where I should be. I'm not where I ought to be, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's rocked him. Individually rocked Isaiah. It was like, okay, God, I know some people who need to meet you. Okay, God, I know some people who've really got some bad sour mouths. They're gossiping, they're backbiting. I I got some people out there. No, the very first thing Isaiah did was he saw a, a, a diminishedness, a brokenness, an incompleteness in himself. My lips. And notice the specificity of this. He said his lips. See, I told you back, back several weeks ago, Satan wants to call you bad, make you bad. We just read that we are created for his good pleasure. We were plea created for him. He finds pleasure in us. So it's not that we are bad. Now, we may do bad things. And for, for, for example, Isaiah had a problem. I don't know why. He had a problem with his lips. Maybe he was a gossiper. Maybe he was a little critical. Maybe, maybe he was maybe he's envious and he left that out there. Listen, the lips, the tongue, it's a dangerous thing. James said it like this. He said, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life is set on fire by hell. Do you realize some of the words that we say are literally from hell? Here it is, this great, listen, listen to the dichotomy of this. Don't miss this. Here's a man who's going to be called one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, who's going to speak to kings, he's going to speak to people, he's going to speak to rulers, he's going to speak for God. But he has a problem with his lips. Before God could use Isaiah... God had to redeem Isaiah. 
God chose to use Isaiah in the very way that he was broken and frail and, and, and sinful. God chose to use him in the very area as a means of restoration. Isn't it absolutely incredible that God would take the brokenness of somebody, redeem it, reconcile it, make it whole and right, so that he could use that very thing. Some of y'all in this room, I'll give you some more examples. Some of y'all in this room are incredible at making money. You're just, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you make a lot of money, you want to make more money, I get it. And you, but you're, you're sitting there and you, you have all these great ideas and you get a little capital and you go out and you invest it and you make money. And that's, that's great. And you just have this power to make wealth. Beautiful. But man, when it comes to giving, mm, God's looking and he's just tapping your wallet. He's saying, you know what? You've become consumed with spending for yourself. I, I, want, I, want, I want to touch that. I want to redeem that part of you. Some of you are master leaders. You're, you're a leader on your sports team if you're a student in school. You're a leader in, in the club in, uh, at school or you're, you're a leader in the band or, you, or you're a leader on the job or you're a leader, you're a leader, you're a leader. You just got it in you. But somehow your leadership abilities are so incredible, but your character stinks. And your abilities may take you where your character can't keep you. And God is touching your character today and He's saying, unclean. It's not right. I want to do so much more in your life, but your character's got to be made right. God wants to do extraordinary things in your life. And we're all a bunch of crackpots. I get it. But it's whenever God does the greatest work with his broken vessels. Like Isaiah's lips were unclean, and then yet God redeems them. He makes them whole. He makes them right. We'll read in just a few moments when that happens, what happens after that. But here's, what, here's, here's the beauty of that. God takes us in all of our brokenness, and he uses our brokenness. And he does this in an extraordinary way. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 is one of my favorite verses. Now, we have this treasure in clay jars. We're the clay jars. So that, here's why we're just clay jars. And why he uses broken, cracked clay jars. So that, purpose clause, henna clause, this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Oh, it's not his great strength. It's what God does in him. That's what's beautiful and powerful and absolutely incredible. Number three, we see adoration, we see revelation of who I'm not, but then we see the transformation into what God wants me to be. I hope every week you'll see this, 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 this played out. You'll see a time of adoration. You'll see a time of this revelation. Oh, I'm not what I should be. And then I hope there's this, this response on you where this is where real worship starts transforming us is whenever we start allowing God to change us. But instead, we become pretty soft when it comes to worship, pretty self-centered when it comes to worship. Gordon Dole says it like this, most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Don't miss that phrase. As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. Their relationships 
disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair. Their lifestyle resembles a cast of characters in search of a plot. Ouch! A cast of characters in search of a plot. When we encounter the glory of God, and we result, and the result comes out of that is we begin to worship Him. God, I'm not worthy. God, my lips are unclean. Maybe it's our hands. Maybe God points at our hands. Your hands are unclean. Maybe it's our feet. Our feet are taking us to places we should not be going. Maybe it's our mind. We're thinking thoughts that we should not be thinking. Maybe it's our eyes. We're looking at things we shouldn't be looking at. What is it in you that God points at and he wants to call and he wants to redeem and he wants to use it for his glory? Because when he does this, he does this beautiful cleansing work. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew. This is when they began to serve the Lord in worship. The angels are having his hand a uh, uh, burning coal that he had taken from uh, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, the very place that was unclean. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. What was unclean? His lips. What was now clean? His lips. Listen to this next phrase. If you have a hard copy Bible, circle it, highlight it, make it bold, and say it with me. Your guilt. Say it. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The beauty of Christ's work in us transforms us when we experience Him in worship through His glory. That transforming work of God is absolutely incredible. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I want to close with this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You want to know what worship is today, as it was in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament? When we bring ourselves to Him, in service to Him. Isaiah pointed out here, he said, whenever God said, hey, Who am I going to send? Who will go for me? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. See, all of a sudden, now his life was free to serve. Now his life was free to go. And the very first words from God, and I didn't even put it on the screen, the very first words from God in verse 9, he said, go. Who will I send and who will go for me? I will, God. I'm available. I'm here. I'm what, blank check, God, here I am, send me. You know, this passage out of all of the Old Testament is probably one of the most life-transforming passages in my life. And I can tell you when and I can tell you where that happened. It was in 1986. No, it was 1987 in January. And it was on my very first trip, my only trip up until then to Israel. I was a freshman in college, and I was stayed around in the hotel room, and my two roommates had gone out, and I was reading Isaiah 6. And God literally broke me to my knees, and I found myself with my face planted in the carpet, crying out to God, because He showed me Himself, and He showed me myself, and they were not in alignment. And I started weeping out and crying out, God, would you fix this area of my life? It's not right. Would you fix this area of my life? It's not right. 
And then, God, would you use me? I am here. I am available. Would you use me? And ever since then, I go back to Isaiah 6, and I read it again, and it takes me back to my freshman year in college. And I could share this message anywhere and everywhere, and I would be the same thing. Let God change your life. See Him in His glory, and let Him change your life, and let Him make of you something beautiful. Father God, we bow before you. And we do not want to miss the glory of God. And I don't think in any way my words did your glory justice. But oh God, would you be glorified in this place? Would you be glorified in your people? Would you let your glory, would you reveal your glory to us and let your glory change us so that we'd be free to serve wherever you desire? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.